working group in religion and cognitive science that's been ongoing for the past three, two, three, four years now. Um, we're uh, very fortunate to have uh, Richard and the Institute of Buddhist Studies hosting us for this uh, book panel this afternoon. It's going to focus on uh, the recent work of Mark Graves, uh, uh, book Mind, Brain, and the Use of Soul. Uh, Mark's been one of the, the, the leaders of the, uh, the working group on religion and cognitive science here that brings together scholars and students, teachers from the Graduate Theological Union, um, as well as UC Berkeley, and sort of in front, sort of extended uh, researcher colleagues interested in religion, theology, um, and the cognitive sciences. Uh, and and we're, we're very pleased to be able to t today talk about Mark's book, which is a synthesis of a lot of this material, and, and in some ways kind of a, um, a mirror back on some of the conversations we've been having over the past couple of years. So uh, it's nice to be here, it's nice to be with Mark and, and, and my colleagues here. Um, those of you signed up out here, you'll be able to keep in touch with, with this group. We'll keep you posted on future activities. Um, with, without anything more on that, I'll introduce briefly our, our panelists, our, our discussants. We have uh, Doug Oman from uh, Berkeley School of Public Health, um, Mary Walsh, a graduate theological union uh, graduate and a licensed uh, uh, marriage and family therapist, and Richard Payne, a dean of uh, IBS here. So, and they're going to speak uh, in that order uh, for however long they're going to speak for. Uh, uh, Mark will respond and, and, and offer his reflections, and, and we'll open it up to uh, questions and comments from the rest of you. So, um, that's all So, Doug, have a Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I brought some PowerPoints with me. I guess you suggest I'm from the, from the university rather than some Spiritual practices, spiritual growth, and emerging soul perspectives from public health. And uh, so, I think what I'll be doing is uh, talking about uh, the, uh, having read through Mark's book, uh, talking about the kinds of uh, thoughts about my work that that was brought out, and and um, and questions that arise about how how they might be connected. Uh, what uh, what marks what might suggest for my work and what my work might suggest for, for expanding the rich uh, synthesis and rich system that Mark has suggested. Uh, and we have uh, uh, because uh, we don't have a remote, uh, we're going to be doing a, a sort of old-fashioned remote. You see me doing this. So maybe let's try it. <laughs> okay. So uh, basically, uh, uh, first I'm going to talk a bit about uh, the relevance of spirituality and spiritual health and soul to uh, health care, and then talk some about social science conceptualization and being a living idea of popular culture too. Now, um, how many of you here are, are would characterize yourself as more from a social science background than from the theology or um, religious background. Okay, so, oh, so maybe about half of the other way, maybe more from the theology than from the social science background would be about, uh, okay, maybe a third. 
or something. Okay, so um, that, that's helpful because I'm, I guess I'm a bit more from the, the social science background. At least that's the types of uh, journals and so on that I publish research in. So then I'll be connecting that with uh, Mark Gray's book and talking about possible questions and challenges. So uh, we begin probably by trying to say, well, who cares about this topic now? And uh, well, obviously, uh, spiritual and religious people care about that topic. And there might be various subgroups there, uh, clergy and religious, uh, educators, and of course, devout lady. How do, how do I grow spiritually? And what kind of outcomes do we care about? Well, maybe the foundational outcome, at least the normal outcome, that's at the core of it all, would be spiritual growth that's tied to some kind of ultimate concern of serving God or loving God or realizing God or realizing nirvana or realizing the self. Uh, of course, there may be other things that, uh, benefits that happen along the way, uh, which might also be of interest to other groups, such as health professionals, such as myself. They may be interested in outcomes, such as there's a lot of research connected to longevity and uh, there's also a big body that religion and spirituality may offer unique uh, uh, ways, unique dimensions of coping with stress. Uh, there's a big literature part in it if you, you know, the psychologist. So that's another group that cares about spiritual growth. And then uh, a small but possibly uh, relevant for the future, interesting group to watch is just educators in general. I don't know. How many of you may have heard of the contemplative practice fellowships that have been funded by Fetzer Institute where people across uh, lots of you know, English teachers and so on have been figuring out ways to integrate contemplative practices into university classrooms, and, uh, secular and religious. And what kinds of outcomes might they be interested in? Well, maybe things like understanding religious and spiritual culture, but also maybe things like training the mind and, self-control, self-regulation, or just general effectiveness. So a lot of groups that might care about this. And so that's, I think, one of the, the uh, it, it shows what a big, deep topic Mark has taken on, that in as much as, as we, can, we can help uh, reintegrate religion and spirituality into the discussion, into the academy, uh, one of the outcomes might be fostering spiritual growth, which is something that a lot of these groups. Okay, uh, so let's focus in a bit on the scientific group. That's my background. Uh, uh, there, I'm not sure how much familiarity you all may have with this literature, but there actually is a great deal of uh, published scientific uh, literature looking at uh, connecting religion and spirituality to health. Uh, there are. Um, Lots and lots of journals have published maybe individual studies, but uh, if you take a look at uh, journals that have published whole special sections or special issues uh, since 2000, or uh, already by 2005 when I created the original version of the slide, uh, take a look at, uh, here is a list of uh, some of the, <coughs> yeah, and that's only, that's already by 2005. By now I'm sure there may be quite a few more. Now you, you see that's, you know, scattered, scattered widely, behavioral medicine, social work, education, uh, southern medical, you know, so, 
So it's very possible to be in one particular field, such as psychology or medicine, and not be aware that there's this huge scientific output going on. Uh, but when you step back and you look at it, it's really quite impressive. Yeah. And uh, here's uh, just sort of to throw out an appetizer of some of the uh, recent research that I find most fascinating on this topic. Uh, uh, Amy Wachholz and Kenneth Parkinson of uh, Bowling Green University in Ohio uh, did a study, published a paper in 2005 uh, comparing uh, <coughs> meditating on a spiritual focus versus meditating on a secular focus. Now I think um, I think this is this is a very interesting bit of research to present uh, in the, the Buddhist um, uh, context uh, who are our hosts here um, because uh, I think the, the, the mindfulness forms of Buddhist meditation have been um, contributed tremendously to helping um, get the topic of contemplative practices out there widely, widely researched and it's hot time. You can you know, go into the electronic databases and you know, every month there are you know, all these new studies. Uh, just a tremendous contribution there. Uh, but um, uh, one, I think a, a certain cost that has been paid is this uh, simplifying and stripping away of some of the spiritual context that came with the contemplative practices. So, um, how to how to start stepping back and thinking of that larger spiritual context? Well, uh, one way to do that is to compare uh, what happens when uh, instead of uh, focusing on the breath, which is a, a very common the vipassana of mindfulness meditation technique, if you compare focusing on some words uh, like the Benson method or like the TM method, and you compare focusing on spiritual focus versus the secular focus, and have everything else be the same. And there were some surprising results that emerged from this. And my stance towards this, and I'm throwing this out as kind of a, you know, tantalizing mental appetizer, so to speak, is that is that the, the whole process of focusing attention or being mindful, maybe that's part of the story of contemplative practices. But maybe also these more semantic things having to do with meaning. Maybe that's another part of the story. Maybe we can't quite pull it all together in a single story yet, but let's pay attention to both parts of the story. So what happened in the study? Meditating on the spiritual focus versus secular focus. Let's show you exactly what that meant. Uh, the secular group, this was randomized, they were given a choice of four different foci. Uh, most, I think, like almost all of them were content with choosing one of those four. Uh, and uh, then you can see it's almost a, almost just a correspondence of changing a couple of words. I'm joyful versus God is joy in the spiritual group. Uh, and everybody, they had a choice of one of those four. And this was, uh, they were otherwise the instructions were identical, 20 minutes a morning. Uh, they did this for a couple of weeks. And uh, what happened? Well, uh, compared to the secular focus, the spiritual focus, they had reduced anxiety by, I forget precisely which psychological measure, 
improved mood, and increased pain tolerance uh, as measured by uh, how long they could stand having their arm there in a cold press. Uh, so, uh, which is a pretty standard standard measure there. So, so whoa, you know, what, what's going on here? What was there about this spiritual focus? Is it, can this be connected with all these other things that we, we see in terms of beneficial spiritual outcomes associated with religion spirituality? And since that time, they replicated this study. Three years later, another publication, uh, this was undergrad suffering from migraine headaches. Uh, a lot of the same results, uh, less anxiety, better mood, fewer headaches, fewer migraine headaches, uh, greater confidence in managing the currents of headaches, and then also, also some uh, uh, spiritual outcomes there. Uh, these are questionnaire self-report measures. Um, measuring spirituality is uh, <clears throat> always something to be taken with a few grains of salt. Uh, so uh, you're either uh, taking those grains of salt if you've encountered the idea of measuring it before, or you're more optimized to take it with a few grains. But still, when you have two groups that have been randomly pulled apart, and then you see these differences in this measure, you have a mystery of your game. So something, something was going on uh, with just tweaking a couple of words there. So, so uh, that's sort of an appetizer to help us think about, uh, you know, what what can this research tell us that could benefit all of these groups? So, so now I'd like to move over into the uh, conceptualization. I, I tend to work quite a bit with uh, uh, psychology and concepts from psychology uh, and uh, social sciences, and that. Uh, uh, one uh, fairly common way of defining what we mean by spirituality or, or spiritual growth in the social sciences, there was a paper uh, published uh, by Ken Pardon and Peter Hill and a number of the prominent leaders in psych of psychology and religion who said we can define spirituality as a search for the sacred which may involve attempts to identify, articulate, maintain, or transform how we're conceptualizing or experiencing the sacred. You may notice that this begs a certain question. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, and I imagine that Anyway, it's interesting to, to be trying to uh, present this uh, framework in a, in a Buddhist, combination of Buddhist uh, and other setting, too. So how, has it, how, how might we address this? Well, uh, one way to do that uh, has been done by Ken Pardunit, one of the leaders there. He says, well, we can identify the sacred by its qualities, Transcendence, boundlessness, ultimacy. I think that seems like it's getting us in the right ballpark. Um, maybe for some applications, that's good enough. Another, uh, another comes from Houston Smith, uh, who this is still living here in Berkeley, um, and he uh, he says, well, uh, uh, across all the major faith traditions. 
there seems to be some concept of the universe as involving a hierarchy of being, levels of being. Maybe at the top things like the divine or angels or, or deeper levels of being. And uh, down at the very bottom, purely material things. And what he suggests, uh, I think we have it on this slide. Yeah, uh, it seems to be suggesting that higher levels can be thought of as being more sacred. <coughs> if he doesn't suggest it, I suggest it. So one way of, of defining the sacred, at least conceptually, this is not too good for trying to measure things, but at least conceptually, it's higher levels are more sacred. And then, uh, oh yeah, and this is what Houston uh, Smith says. He says, reducing this chain to two levels, if you, if you want to dichotomize this multi-level thing, you get uh, a dichotomy sacred on the top. Okay, so uh, we're in all this uh, this framework that I'm, and uh, the reason I'm telling you this framework is just that it, it's sort of, it's something that I've evolved trying to be working in this empirical, uh, empirical world of social sciences where you want to test your ideas against data and that uh, that you get, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so I'm trying to reach out, uh, uh, see, see what Mark's rich set of ideas may suggest uh, for me in this framework, or what questions arise from within this framework to Mark's, Mark's book. So, so just to continue presenting uh, this framework, uh, where does soul fit into all of this? Uh, and, uh, well, uh, Houston Smith again suggests certain things. He says, uh, you may, if you've read his 1976 book, uh, Primordial Tradition, you may recognize this, this figure. Uh, and uh, uh, this, he's uh, taking those levels of reality, the outer levels are the higher levels, the inner, in this case, are the lower. Uh, the the uh, most sacred uh, would be, in the universe, would be the infinite, and then within a person, it would be the divine, the, the spirit, the inner spirit of the person. And then the next level there would be the soul. So it seems like in Houston Smith's conception, the soul might be one thing just short of this divine spirit. Uh, Mark's nodding, I'm sorry to believe that. Anyway, Mark can, Mark can give us the fourth story perhaps later. So, so, um, uh, and then uh, Houston Smith also offers us uh, a verbal, more verbal definition. If we equate mind with the stream of consciousness, the soul is the source of the stream. Okay, so, uh, so spiritual growth is a progress on the search for the sacred, so which may lead uh, to seeking the sacred via the soul. In other words, the soul is something that we encounter on this search for the sacred. It can be, uh, uh, and two ways that the soul may come in is that we may seek uh, knowledge of the soul and its relation to the sacred as a way of helping us get to the sacred. And also, uh, another thing is we may try to direct the soul's strivings to God or the spirit of the sacred. Okay. Uh, 
know, I think, uh, well, I had a couple of examples here. Maybe I'll go over, I'll go over these quickly. Uh, one example, okay. Uh, this is just, there are some interesting things about how, uh, how Houston Smith's framework may fit into Protestant tradition. I think I'll skip over it. And uh, also interesting things about the, uh, what's going on with the Buddhist tradition. Uh, just, you know, can you even conceptualize of something like spirit in the Buddhist tradition? So uh, I'm citing this uh, famous, famous quote that there is some concept of permanence not uh, as being there in addition to changing. Anyway, there are many people more expert on this in the room. But anyway, this is just aiming to suggest uh, that I, I like Houston Smith's approach. I think it, it may be widely applicable, though I'm sure that you also agree. Okay, let's, let's go on. So, um, uh, okay, moving on from the, the traditional uh, state-of-the-art thing that, that theologians and others may think about and, and how the social scientists are, I mean, how is this thought about in popular culture? Uh, uh, I think I'll skip what now. Uh, let's, let's go on. Um, Robert Wattnow has surveyed American concepts of spirituality. I don't know if you know his book, uh, After Heaven. It's a 1998 book, Spirituality in America since 1950. Basically, he says, uh, there seem to be lots of different ideas about what role the, the self and the sacred plays, the self plays in spirituality. So uh, there is no one simple answer about what's going on in popular culture, which is, I'm sure you already knew. Uh, but there's also, interestingly enough, and uh, this, I guess, came out contemporaneous with Mark's book, uh, some uh, survey data where Rickert, cognitive uh, scientist, took uh, 161 UC Riverside psychology students and did some surveys to see what they think about the soul. And 67% uh, think the soul exists, uh, which is compared with 94% think that the mind exists. I'm not sure what the other six <laughs> That's, that's the thing about, uh, about uh, real data, right? It always surprises you a bit. And, uh, it also found uh, that 26%, and we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about uh, Georgia or something. We're talking about uh, UC Riverside. 26% thinks that, thought that the soul begins before conception. 28% think the soul is invariant over the life cycle, and 84% think that it continues after death, uh, which means that more people think it continues after death than that it exists. But you know, this is real data for you. Right? So, uh, but uh, you know, uh, and, they, and so one conclusion from this is that they do often think that. It, uh, existence of the soul is being dissociated from all these changes that we go through over the life cycle. So I guess I would, from this perspective, one of the questions that this raises for Mark's uh, framework is, while you've used the Aristotelian uh, definition of the soul, um, 
how much of that can be transferred to what people like these Riverside students believe, or you know, the, the ones who have the more traditional conception, and how much cannot be transferred, or, or an alternative way of phrasing how could how could this framework be expanded? So, okay. Uh, oh. And a related question is how, and this is sort of a background question that's been kind of implicit in the time that I've been talking, is how can Mark's account be, uh, how can it help people foster spiritual growth, um, either in its present form or you know, in an expanded form? And, uh, oh. And I'm even offering ten, uh, tentative answers that work. <laughs> One is that, and I think this is extremely important. So even if, even if Mark's uh, framework didn't do anything else, I'd say you know, it may help the academy to recover interest and respect for the whole topic, and then can start re reweaving it in in appropriate places, uh, and which could be legitimizing. You know, a, a young college kid comes in from Podunk and you know is the cool, sophisticated way to be to you know to just totally abandon whatever they had learned is you, know, you see where I'm going. So that's one possible answer. Uh, and another of course as well. Uh, can can Mark's framework direct um, you know suggest wiser ways of living, wiser practices. Okay. Okay, now I'm going to try to uh, briefly summarize Mark's economy and then turn back to a few more questions and hopefully, I'm not sure how long I've been going on for, but I, I, I'm, I'm conscious that I have been going on for a while. So uh, I think we're, uh, we're about to get into lots of questions for uh, after some of this. Okay, so uh, here are some things that uh, struck me about, about the book. Uh, I uh, I got turned on to the word that I seldom have a chance to use, but uh, apparently the word Menschenbildung uh, in German means view of human nature, and I and uh, so I thought, well I've known about Galtenschang view of the world for a long time, uh, but here's this uh, view of human nature, and that, that why don't we talk about uh, improving, uh, remedying our, our overly materialist Weltanschauung. We have an overly materialist Weltanschauung, but let's, if we want to get specific about human nature, let's improve our overly materialist nation. We got that from a, uh, well, I can, there have been some academic publications on this. And uh, soul is an emergent property of uh, the universe. Human systems. Uh, Mark drew heavily on systems theory, and that's another point of contact we'll be getting back to. And uh, bringing religion into the mix of all the cognitive science disciplines and uh, six levels of reality. So a rich, a rich system uh, for uh, helping characterize what's going on when people are doing these things that lead to lead to health and efficacy and all these other things. Okay, so as I, as I thought about the, these, all this rich material that uh, uh, Mark presented and what he, he 
present a very coherent system here. Uh, these, just to remind us all, these are some of these disciplines that he, he, he drew on. And I think now I have his questions coming up. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, okay. So now I'm, I wanted to characterize uh, how, does, how does Mark's system very, uh, address this spiritual growth, which is uh, which is this factor of interest that I'm, uh, that's related to these health benefits? How does it relate to that? It gives an overall context of where spiritual growth happens. Uh, in some places, Mark gives a specific account of spiritual growth. For example, page 170, talking about it happening through various spiritual practices, uh, qualities for prayer, love, and service. Uh, and so, uh, creates experiences and memories that allow identification with resurrected bodies continued worship student. and a passage like that it sort of makes sort of makes makes my uh, antenna go up and say hey you know those sound like things I can like you know maybe operationalize on so thinking about you know where I could where I remember hearing about measures of those things or how I might go out and make it. so that so it's that type of account that made me that, that, that can make Mark's book a, a great resource for what I do. And um, well, there wasn't a full focused discussion, so, so I'm thinking, you know, uh, version 2.0, cool, you know, I'm waiting for 2.0. I think that uh, an even fuller, richer discussion with more things I should, uh, that could make me think of ways to measure. Okay, so there, there, my second question is, um, would there be a way to expand this the vision, would there be a way to expand it to incorporate a fuller account of spiritual practices? And then uh, three more questions are, um, how would one, how does training the mind or training attention uh, resonate or fit into the rich account that you've given? I should have printed these out. <laughs> well, I'll send you a slide. Okay. <laughs> but, but, uh, and uh, how uh, spiritual direction or mentoring? I think I think that's a frontier topic in the scientific study of, of meditative practices. You know, bringing that. You know, after having stripped away everything, you know, bringing that dimension of spiritual context back in, and then. Well, this is trickier to study higher states of consciousness and spiritual experiences. How does that can also be unconscious? Uh, uh, I, I think maybe talk a little bit about the unconscious, but there's there's a whole lot of research out there. And, well, Kilstrom, Kilstrom's done that. And so, uh, do where does where does spirit where does that come in? Because I think maybe part of spiritual growth could oh, she dream study. So those are some more questions. Um, and um, I guess I, oh, I brought in a couple of quotes here just to, just to, on the theme of, uh, of uh, spiritual experiences. I mean, some of these things can be, some uh, spiritual experiences can be so intense and so persuasive and so life transforming. You know, where, when do these kinds of things happen in this process of emergent growth? And, you know, just some, another, uh, a stunning quote 
you know, to remind us of how powerful some of these experiences can be. It's something uh, from a humble man. Uh, you know, here's, here's from a humble man uh, who, who had the experience of, of standing up against tremendous opposition. And, and, he, and he's uh, saying that about one of his spiritual experiences that he's so certain of it that, that nothing, essentially nothing could persuade him that, that, that he did not have an experience of Congress. So you know, when, what's the impact of something like that? Um, you don't have to, I mean, we can't, I can't imagine. But anyway, these are just thoughts that arise. As I, as I, and then another question, uh, and here's a connection on systems here. I guess one thing that I'm sort of always dealing with is the whole uh, question of uh, different traditions. And uh, there's one uh, reflex in social science which would say, well, you have uh, one religious denomination, you have another. Hey, let's see which one is more effective in producing health. And I was, uh, that's not the way to. Uh, that's not the way to uh, uh, get people widely interested in, uh, in uh, harmoniously integrating this into their work. Uh, it would be. I always need to say, you know, there may be certain endpoints like. Like uh, finding imperishable realities, finding the sacred that you can get to by different different paths, one destination, many paths. So, uh, Mark, uh, I think he did, he did, yeah. He, I guess he, he mentioned on page fifty-nine. But I was, I was just wondering if there'd be more ways to talk about that, more ways to particularly with the systems theory connection here, because I. That's one way that I've drawn on system theory is drawn on that, that vocabulary even to present that concept. And then, um, yeah, let me that. Uh, oh yeah, just uh, there's some useful vocabulary there. Psychology is starting to recognize uh, similarities across lots of different cultural and faith traditions. And they have a nice phrase there that characterizes the coherent, coherent resemblance of the virtues different systems. Uh, I think I mean this may be, we're getting near the end of the question list. Uh, could, uh, I, as I was thinking about those UC Riverside students uh, and how they thought that maybe the soul uh, persisted past death, uh, I, I also noticed uh, that in Mark's account, he, you know, drawing on the brain, you know, the brain research and stuff. There are a few places where I think you maybe quoted the scientific view that, well, uh, there, ain't, there ain't nothing, or, or no mind can exist without brain. And I thought, well, I, I've never had an experience of mind without brain. I've never had out-of-body experience. I've never had any of these things. But, but do we have to, do we have to tie your account to that, to one stand on whether such, uh, whether mind could exist apart from brain, or could it be possible to bracket that issue instead of taking a stand on it? And I, in fact, I have colleagues who have studied 
psi phenomenon, you know, that maybe brains can communicate, you know, directly in telepathy. There are even uh, people like uh, Wayne Jonas, who is former director of uh, uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, the complementary medicine branch within that NIH, who does studies on how a mind can uh, directly influence, like, uh, growth of yeast in test tubes without any physical mediation. Uh, so, you know, if there are colleagues like this uh, who, who are doing things like that, then is it, you know, could we bracket it instead? And, uh, you know, could it, and if, if the body dies, is it possible that, that the mind could be out there sort of waving its way across a noosphere, even if it, you know, it's, it, it, I don't think that dualism necessarily has to be a consequence of, of mind without the body. Anyway, um, okay, and we'll uh, skip that. And, uh, and then circling around the uh, study cited earlier about the spiritual meditation versus the secular meditation, meditating on these different words, tweak a couple of words, and you get fewer headaches and so on. How, what can, what can Mark's framework suggest for all of, all of those things? And I came up with one idea, that maybe Mark's framework suggests that, that the spiritual focus may in some way draw out of people the greater participation maybe in what Mark was calling their religious and spiritual collective memory, that maybe repeating the God phrase for 20 minutes each morning uh, activated those memories more, uh, and therefore gave them a better uh, viewpoint or lens throughout the rest of the day. So that's, that's my speculation, but, but maybe Mark would have other things to add. And there's a summary of my questions. Thank you very much for, for all of your questions.